you pray with me before we begin? Dear Lord, fix our eyes upon you. God, give us a hunger and thirst for your word. And God, let us leave here with a greater vision of who you are and what you have done. Help us to understand. Help us to respond to your word with worship, with obedience, with thankfulness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're continuing in Galatians, and we'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You'll find the text printed in your bulletin in an insert, and it unfolds like this. And so you have a brief outline and some place for notes if you'd like. But before we begin, I want to talk to you about a man named Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain. I'm not sure if you know who that is or what you think of when you hear that name. Maybe you think of some kind of butler like Neville. Sounds a bit antiquated. But Neville Chamberlain, for those who don't know, was the prime minister of Great Britain during the 1930s. And as some of you may be familiar, he was most famous or infamous for his appeasement policy in regards to Nazi Germany. So appeasement in a political context is defined as this. It is a diplomatic policy of making political or material concessions to an enemy power in order to avoid conflict. It's strategic compromise. So when Hitler came onto the scene and Nazi Germany rose in its aggression, he was sort of like a new kid at a new school, a troublemaker who was testing the waters to see how much he could get away with before he got in trouble. First, Hitler reclaimed Austria, even though the World War I peace agreement prohibited Germany and Austria from ever combining again. But he did it anyway, and no one really did anything. So he knew he could get away with more. He set his eyes next on Czechoslovakia and demanded that it would be absorbed into Germany. How would Chamberlain react? Well, him and the French prime minister kind of knew that the only way to stop Hitler in Germany was to go to war and invade Germany. So they figured it wasn't worth it. And this stance led to the Munich Agreement of 1938. The countries that were present at this agreement were Britain, France, Germany, and Italy. No Czechoslovakia. But essentially, Britain and France pressured Czechoslovakia to cede part of its territory in order to keep Germany at bay. Now, at the time, the international community at large favored this agreement. In support of it, Chamber Chamberlain offered the now infamous words. He said this, How horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. The Munich Agreement pretty much sealed the deal that Hitler could get away with anything. The next year, Germany invaded Poland and then Norway, which finally forced Britain and France to go to war and forced Chamberlain to resign. Now, what started off real small snowballed into the biggest war that the world has ever known. Now, the blame doesn't fall squarely on Chamberlain's shoulders. We have to be charitable. We have to realize that historical events are complex in their causation. And at the same time, we realize that hindsight is 2020, and Chamberlain definitely acted with good intentions. Nonetheless, Chamberlain's appeasement policy 
definitely fueled Hitler's aggression. So when it comes to something like foreign policy, there is a delicate balance between knowing when to act and when not to act. But both of these actions assume that one is acting on behalf of the best interests of the country. So when we come to Galatians this morning, we find that the basis of action is the God-given gospel of grace. This is the priority for Paul. This is what he wants to preserve. This is what he wants to spread. And so as he stands on his uncompromising conviction of Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, he does not put himself in the way of its advance. And this requires humility, and it requires self-denial. So with that, we turn to our text, and we're going to read it. You can find it in your, uh, once again in the insert. Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised, to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The main point that I would like us to get from this text this morning is that God works through conviction and humility to preserve and spread his gospel. God works through conviction and humility to preserve and spread his gospel. And we'll develop this in three points. The first covers the first two verses, and it is Paul's gospel concern. Coming to the portion of Galatians we're dealing with this morning, we know that there's been a charge leveled against Paul, and this charge is from the Judaizers, and that it is, his gospel is wrong or polluted or diluted. To substantiate this charge, the Judaizers, which we remember, are a group of teachers who proclaimed that one had to follow the Old Testament law in order to become a Christian. These Judaizers, to substantiate their criticism against Paul, pitted Paul against the other apostles, saying that Paul's gospel was derivative from theirs and that it was polluted from theirs. How does Paul respond? 
he responds by giving an autobiographical account. He says that he received the gospel directly from the Lord. And this is proven by the dramatic transformation that God brought to his life. So we see that Paul was formerly a terrorist to the church. Killing Christians, persecuting Christians, literally hunting them down. He went from that to a missionary for the church. It's a remarkable transformation. And it is from God and it authenticates that this gospel is directly from God. But after this happened, Paul says that he spent three years on his own before he saw any other apostle. And even when he saw them, he only saw two of them. And even when he saw only two of them, he only spent two weeks with them. So he's proving that his gospel was not only authentic, it was not only real and from God, but that it was independent from the other apostles. So this morning, as we come to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul seeks to prove that even though his gospel is independent, it was nonetheless identical to the gospel of the Jerusalem apostles. So he continues his biographical account in verse 1 of chapter 2. But there's been a significant time gap. It's as if the movie changes scenes and there's a subtitle at the bottom. It says 14 years later. The 14 years most likely refers to the time between this event and the time of Paul's conversion when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. That was the previous time frame in chapter 1, verse 18, when it says after three years. It was after three years since Paul's conversion. So now chapter 2, verse 1, is after 14 years since Paul's conversion, since Jesus appeared to him. Now one of the great things about reading the epistles that we can get a lot of background information from the book of Acts. When we start in Acts and read of Paul's missionary journeys to places like Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, and even Galatia, and then we get to look at the epistles and get sort of a close-up view to each of those trips. So does the book of Acts give us any hint to what's going on in chapter 2? Indeed, the best parallel account is Acts 11. And this is when Paul and Barnabas are ministering to the church in Antioch, which is in Syria, where there was a large mix of Jews and Gentiles. And this was the first place where followers of Jesus were called Christians, Acts says. It is in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas are told of a forthcoming famine in Judea, where Jerusalem is. And this prompts the church in Antioch to send them in order to bring relief to the area. So 14 years after Paul's conversion, and now he's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to stay a little bit longer this time. So who's going with Paul? Paul says two men traveled with him, verse 1, Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas was sort of Paul's Robin. They traveled together on their first missionary journey, which is detailed in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And they would go on to have some wild times. At one point, they ministered, and, and people thought they were Zeus and Hermes, Greek gods. But their relationship eventually hit a bit of a rough patch over one of their assistants, John Mark. John Mark left them during one of their journeys. Barnabas wanted John Mark to continue with them on another journey, but Paul didn't. And it caused a bit of a split. But it would appear that all parties were later reconciled. As Paul says in some of his later letters, 
that John Mark was valuable to him for his ministry. So, Barnabas, Paul's right-hand man, is going with him to Jerusalem. But also, he's bringing with him Titus. And the most important detail about Titus was that he was a Greek, a Gentile, a non-Jew. In his letter to Titus, Paul refers to him as his true child in a common faith. Perhaps indicating that Paul had a decisive role in Titus's conversion of how he became a Christian. We also see that Titus was an instrumental figure in the church at Corinth. And we see the letter to Titus from Paul. Paul deployed Titus to the little island of Crete where he was helping establish new churches. So Paul's going to Jerusalem. It's been 14 years since he got saved. And he's taking with him Barnabas and Titus. Now what is he going to do in Jerusalem? Well, Paul says so in verse 1. He says that he set the gospel before them. And he clarifies who his audience is to those who seemed influential. He he declares the gospel he preached to the Gentiles. And this gospel was the law-free, grace-only, faith-alone, Christ-only gospel. That Christ has accomplished perfect obedience on our behalf and died the death we deserved. All verified by his resurrection. This is the gospel Paul proclaimed. He says there is nothing we can or should add to this work. Indeed, a gospel that adds requirements of human achievement is bad news because it enslaves us with the impossible task of fulfilling all of God's requirements, something we can never do. So as Jesus proclaimed and as the book of Acts testifies, This gospel that Paul preached even to the Gentiles is for everyone, irrespective of social background, irrespective of race or ethnicity. Paul set before this gospel, before those who seemed influential. These men are later identified as apostles. James, the brother of Jesus, John, and Peter who's also known as Cephas. Now, those who seem influential, it's not a slight from Paul. It's merely a description of how people viewed them. And notice that this is a private meaning. So that when we compare with the book of Acts again, we see the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. That's a public declaration. This is a private meeting between Paul and those pillars of the church. So continuing to build the ground up, Paul's concern He's in Jerusalem after spending quite a bit of time on his own. He's there with Barnabas and Titus. And when he arrives, he lays out the gospel before the movers and the shakers of the Jerusalem church. But there's an important question we haven't answered yet. Why is Paul there in the first place? Well, we see two reasons. First, Paul says that he was prompted by revelation. He was prompted by revelation. This is a way of saying that God told him to go to Jerusalem. Perhaps this is a reference to the prophecy of Agabus in Acts 11. Agabus told Paul and Barnabas about the coming famine. We don't know what God said to Paul. But the point is, the point that Paul's trying to make, is that God summoned Paul to Jerusalem, not the apostles. 
So Paul was going to Jerusalem because God told him. Second, Paul was concerned that he was not running in vain. Now what does he mean by this? Because at first blush, this doesn't really seem like Paul. Has he not been confident in how he's describing the gospel? Were all of a sudden doubts creeping into Paul's mind about what the truth is? No, that's not the case. The truth is the truth regardless of what men think. What Paul is concerned with is that he knows the influence of the Jerusalem apostles. And if the Jerusalem apostles bent their knees to the Judaizers, and if they declared Paul's gospel to be untrue, all of Paul's work would essentially be undone. And this would be a real temptation for the Jerusalem apostles. Who was their primary ministry to? It was to the Jews. And so to keep that ethnic pride going and to appease the Judaizers, this would have been a real temptation for the Jerusalem apostles. So Paul's concerned because without unity in the church on what the gospel is, on how we are saved, how we are made right with God, then we cannot move forward in its spread. Paul has a concern of long-term gospel effectiveness. One of the traits I think I've inherited from my dad, um, and it's probably a trait that's, commonly, uh, that's common to many people, especially men, is a general disdain and apprehension of going to the doctor. And when I was a freshman in high school, I had the standard physical education class. That's, it's a statewide public school requirement. You know, you do the swimming tests, you do, you know, the rope climb, whatever. But the best thing about this class was that every Friday, we would play dodgeball. And normally, when we played dodgeball, we used those, those red rubber balls that could kind of fit perfectly into your hand, and you could just obliterate someone with. <laughs> a lot of testosterone's flown in that room. But one particular week, we played with balls that were filled with foam. And these balls are, are just an insult to civilized society. If you've ever tried to throw one of these foam balls, you know that you can't put the same kind of force behind it as a regular red rubber ball. Now, I knew this at the time, but I was somehow convinced that I could bend the laws of physics by just throwing as hard as I could. And so I did it. And the results after that class were not good. My shoulder was just throbbing. But it was baseball season. And I thought I could shake it off. And we had games that week. And I continued to play. And I played in several games until eventually I could barely lift my arm. Finally, I went to the doctor and I discovered that there was so much stress on my shoulder that I actually partially fractured the top of my humerus. Well, the story isn't meant to show you how tough I am. It's meant to show you how stupid and careless I was. I should have done something after that day in the gym, whether it was rest or get it checked out. I shouldn't have ignored that pain because it probably caused further damage. And to this day, I could still get really bad shoulder pain. The Judaizers represented something akin to pain in the body. Now, Jesus' church is guaranteed to have long-term health. 
Jesus himself said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. However, he has charged us, he has charged pastors to exercise oversight over the health of his church. What we have from Paul is a concern for the health of the church. The specific threats to this health were potential division between the Jewish and Gentile wings of the church and potential confusion over the nature of the gospel, of how we're saved. Now, these potential threats may have turned out to be nothing. As we will see, they were stomped out, praise the Lord. But for the sake of the mission of the church and its overall health, Paul could not ignore these threats. So we ask ourselves, what does this concern look like for us? What does this concern look like for us? While holding on to the fact that God will fulfill the Great Commission and that his gospel will not change, how do we express concern about effectively spreading the gospel and keeping it clear? How do we maintain a strong witness for the Lord? Well, the answer, much of it, can be boiled down into a charge that Paul gives Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. He tells his young protege to watch his life and doctrine. Watch your life and doctrine. See, we run in vain when we display that God does not produce holiness in the gospel. When we profess to be Christians but effectively live the same as those who do not know God. We show our message is credible, not with perfect lives, but with sincere lives. We also run in vain when we grow unconcerned with precise biblical doctrine, especially regarding the fundamental components of the gospel. So what are the specific things that could cause us to compromise our life and doctrine? How can we be really intentional about this? So the first application comes directly from the text. And Paul's concern is about unity in the church. Our witness is weakened when there is a lack of unity in the church. Now, Paul will continue to deal with this going forward in Galatians. And by no means do we preserve unity at any cost. We preserve unity for the gospel's sake. Yet, weakened unity and therefore a weakened witness do not always occur because of disagreements over doctrine. In fact, a lot of times they don't, especially in a local church. When we examine what has brought the most damage to the witness and unity of churches, perhaps the most glaring threat, the biggest potential injury to the body that cannot be ignored is sexual immorality. How many pastors, how many Christians have fallen prey to this? Let us be careful lest we think we stand. Do not believe Satan's lies. Like all sin, this sin, sexual immorality, seeks to sever you from the life-giving God. See the surpassing joy that is following Jesus and trust that his way is the best way. God does not mean to keep you from joy. God's path is joyful. It is the most joy. 
And his will for our life is our sanctification, our sexual purity. But it's not just this sin that can weaken our unity and therefore weaken our witness. There are many threats. Just to list a few. Talk about ethnic or racial division. How about gossip? Pride? Love of money? The list goes on, friends. Looking down the road of Old Oak Bible Church, if the Lord tarries for the next 40 years, may he keep us from these things. Now, all of us here will stumble. We will. We still have sin remaining in us. But let us continually pick ourselves up. Stand on the firm forgiveness of Jesus and march forward in the power of the Spirit. Let us take heart that though we may fail and at times compromise our witness, we have a Lord who never failed, never did fail, and never will fail. And he will bring to completion the work he began in us. Let's march forward in gospel concern for gospel effectiveness. So the question at hand in Galatians chapter 2 is now, would the, God, would the apostles in Jerusalem agree with Paul that the law-free gospel is, in fact, the gospel? Or would they bend the knee to the Judaizers and subsequently draw an unnecessary line of division in the church? There's a little bit of tension here. And the response is first indicated in the person of Titus. And this is our second point, gospel preserved, verses 3 to 5. So when we read that Paul brought Titus along with him to Jerusalem, we kind of have to wonder what Paul's intentions were. Is he a little passive-aggressive here? Is he just going to try to push the envelope and test the issue? We don't know for sure, but the issue certainly did come up. And what was the issue? The crux of it was circumcision. Now, we are all mature here, but the concept of circumcision has always made me kind of queasy. Um, circumcision first appears in the Bible as a sign given to Abraham that he belonged to Yahweh, the one true God. That sign was passed down to the people of Israel, and it was meant to mark off who belonged to the people of God. That's the key thing to remember. That circumcision was a sign. Think of it like the ordinance of baptism. Baptism is a sign of an inward reality and is meant to mark off who are the people of God, who is the church. So the crux of the issue is circumcision. And Paul's going to spend a lot of time talking about circumcision in the, later in his letter. For now, it is enough to say that the Judaizers, who were kind of these slimy guys who just sought to bring division, not honest debate, they argued that following the Mosaic law, which included circumcision, was required to be justified, to be justified, to be declared right before God. And, it was all, and therefore, it was required to be a part of God's people. So, how do we respond? How does Paul respond? Certainly, this issue has come up before, and it probably came up in Antioch, where there was a big mix of Jews and Gentiles. But when Paul brings Titus to Jerusalem, 
Titus acts as sort of a test case of how they're going to handle this issue uh, going forward. He sets a precedent. So what happened? Paul gives the conclusion, he kind of gives a spoiler right away in verse 3. He says that Titus was not forced, or some translations say not compelled, to be circumcised. Indeed, when the Judaizers bursted onto the scene, they did not yield to them for a moment, verse 5 says. So for Paul, the guy who is this card-carrying Pharisee, required, who required the law previously, now he says requiring the law for justification meant slavery. Slavery. One commentator says this, reverting to the law is a yoke of slavery because human beings cannot keep the demands of the law. Hence, they groan under the law's demands, which they cannot fulfill. Slavery requiring the law. The good news is that Jesus brings freedom. He said himself that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. What is impossible for us and where we fail is possible for him, and he succeeded. Christ lived the life that we should have lived, but he died the death that we deserved. Therefore, those who believe in him are not only forgiven and free, but they also have a new righteousness that they can never achieve on their own. And praise God that justification by faith, not works, the true gospel, praise God that that was preserved here in Jerusalem in Galatians 2. And praise God that it's preserved now, that the same gospel that saved them saves us. Harlan David Sanders, better known as Colonel Sanders, started a fried chicken joint in Corbin, Kentucky over 75 years ago. Now, despite what you see on commercials, the colonel was actually a real person. And it was perhaps America's first celebrity chef. Now, the colonel built the fast food giant of Kentucky Fried Chicken based on the chicken coated with 11 secret herbs and spices. The recipe is one of corporate America's most coveted and best-kept secrets. But over the years, and even recently, there have been rumors that the recipe has been leaked or made known. Nonetheless, the recipe KFC uses remains the same recipe that they used 75 years ago. It's preserved for you and me so that we can enjoy that same mediocre fried chicken. <laughs> Friends, the gospel of justification by faith in Christ has been preserved for you and me despite constant attempts to corrupt it. We've seen in the previous weeks how the Galatians were tempted to stray from the grace-based gospel. And we noticed this week that adding requirements to the gospel means putting on a yoke of slavery, a burden that we cannot lift and carry. Preserving the gospel for us involves conviction as a church to remain biblical in our convictions and teachings to ground our doctrine based on what God has said in his word. However, preserving the gospel also requires conviction to stand firm against opposition within ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we have to constantly, constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. Remind ourselves 
that our ultimate value, that our ultimate peace with God is not based on what we do, but on what Christ has done. Our service and devotion to the Lord are out of gratitude. And we do not hopelessly pursue to earn God's favor. No, God's favor is one in Jesus. So maybe you don't have the fervor or the energy of a 20-something-year-old. And therefore, you feel less valuable to God. Well, don't think this, friend. In Christ, you are not less of an adopted son or daughter as the teenager who is a Christian. Remember that God sees your heart. Like that widow in Mark chapter 12 who gave what seemed like such a small amount of money, but it was all she had. Maybe you don't have energy or abundance, but God sees the heart behind what you offer. He sees that your heart has been warmed and cleansed by his son. Maybe you think that you don't have enough knowledge of the Bible to be effectively used by God, and therefore you're less valuable to him. Friend, a robust knowledge of the Bible is not a requirement for salvation. If you believe in Jesus, his blood covers your sin as much as the Christian who knows the Bible backwards. Know that you can always learn, and we want you to. But also remember the blind man who was healed by Jesus in John 9. When he was questioned about Jesus by the Pharisees, he didn't offer a lengthy dissertation in defense. No, he said something simple. He said, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Friends, do not add requirements to the gospel that are not there. Preserve it. We seek growth, yes, but we only seek it because we are already accepted. Indeed, Paul was concerned that the church would remain united regarding the gospel regarding the gospel that does not add any requirements other than faith in Jesus. And we have seen that this concern was first answered by the test case of Titus. And now we're going to hear directly from the horse's mouths what the apostles had to say. And this is the third point, and it will be brief. Verses 6 to 10, the gospel spread. In verse 6, Paul finally describes the explicit verdict of the Jerusalem apostles. We ask, what was necessary for the apostles to move forward together? Well, first, they had to begin with the same base teaching. Agree upon what the gospel is and how we are saved. Secondly, they had to recognize one another, that God had gifted them. So in this last section, there are a lot of diversions and a lot of moving parts, which means it will be helpful for us to ask certain investigative questions so that we may see Paul's organization of his thoughts. So first we ask, who made the decision? Paul describes the Jerusalem apostles as those who seem to be influential. James, Peter, and John as those who seem to be pillars. He says something interesting in verse 6, sort of a side note. He says, what they were makes no difference to me. What does this mean? Paul absolutely respects the apostles but he notices that the Judaizers had just this inflated view of who they were. It's as Paul is saying, it's like, I understand that they're apostles. I understand that they're influential. I respect them. But they are just men. So what decision did these men make 
Paul phrases this both negatively and positively. Negatively, in verse 6, he says that the Jerusalem apostles added nothing to him. Paul set before him the whole thing, what he preached. Grace only, faith alone, Christ alone. They said, all right, that's awesome. That's spot on. They added nothing to him. And moreover, positively, we see later that they gave him the right hand of fellowship. They were partners, equals, on the same mission. They recognized Paul's giftedness. And then we, so we ask, why did they make that, this decision? They recognized in verse 7 that Paul had been commissioned to the Gentiles. And in verse 9, they saw a special gift of grace God had given Paul. It takes one to know one. And the apostles embodied that. So what was the result of this gospel partnership? Well, it was the, gospel, it was the spread of the gospel. And isn't that wonderful? Could you imagine if the Jerusalem apostles simply bought into the rumors, bought into the rumors about Paul, that he's this false teacher, that he's gotten everything wrong, and they didn't honestly listen to him? There would have been unnecessary division, and it would have hurt the gospel witness. But instead, they were patient. They heard Paul out. And the Jerusalem apostles recognized that their primary sphere of ministry would be to those in Israel and Paul's to the Gentiles around the world. And so they worked together for a ministry of compassion. Compassion first in meeting people's eternal needs, pointing people to Jesus who saves us from eternal suffering and brings us back to God. And secondly, meeting the, meeting the compassion needs of physical needs. Recognizing that loving others, as seen in verse 10, Loving others in the name of Jesus also means doing what you can to provide for those who need help. And there were many of these in Judea. Paul and the rest of the apostles had the same vision for gospel ministry, and they pressed on together. So indeed, it turned out that Paul was not running the race in vain. The metaphor he, he uses conjures up images of a relay race. If you've ever seen a running relay or a swimming relay, you know that it's a clear picture of cooperation and dependence. If one member of the relay stumbles or steps outside the line or drops the baton, it doesn't matter how well the other members of the race ran. The whole work is for nothing. So this was not the case with Paul and the Jerusalem apostles. They were running the same race and could count on one another. Thus, we have several lessons to learn from their interaction. First, we see the importance of humility and patience. Like we already observed, the Jerusalem apostles were willing to hear Paul out, willing to listen. Furthermore, these men were humble. They would have every reason in the world not to be humble. These men spent three years while Jesus was doing his ministry. These were men of great influence, but these were not men of great egos. How easy would it be for us to look at someone who used to be our enemy, but is then saved by God and used by God to bring many people to himself? 
How easy would it be for us to look at that person and dismiss them, be envious of them, or be angry at them? Instead, the Jerusalem apostles saw Paul preach the same gospel they did. And they recognized that it was God who was working through him. And that's what it came down to for the apostles. They understood the big picture of the gospel race. If they knew Paul was running the same race, that he preached the same gospel, then why would they impede him? Listen, we can have differences of certain doctrine and methods, but there is only one gospel. This leads us to a second lesson we learned from them, that we must die to ourselves. We must die to ourselves. If we have an attitude of my way or the highway, we will either impede the spread of the gospel or not rejoice when God does bring fruit. God has saved and forgiven believers in Jesus, but he has not yet perfected us. This means that it will be impossible to live as a local church if we do not die to ourselves. Listen, people will annoy you. There will be things that you don't like. In fact, I would submit to you, if you have never been ticked off at someone at church, then either you're lying to yourself or you, are, you just put yourself at too far of a distance. We are not here to deny the reality that living as a local church doesn't present difficulties. And we're not here to hand out excuses either. We are here to remind ourselves of the bigger picture. Will we forget the gospel? Will we forget the race that is set before us? Will we put ourselves first? Jesus says we must not do this. Jesus said that to follow him, we must deny ourselves. And there's so much sin remaining in us that we must deny ourselves daily. So in conclusion, looking at the horizon of the next 40 years of ministry at Old Oak Bible Church, let us ask for God's help that we do not run in vain. There will be joy, yes, but the race set before us will be hard. We will be tempted to compromise, to find acceptance and value in what we do instead of what Christ has done. And we will be tempted to needlessly fight against one another instead of striving ahead together for the sake of the gospel. Oh, friends, let us always remember the great news of what God has done for us in Christ, that there is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let us remember the bigger race by denying ourselves, following Jesus, and pointing others to him. Let's pray. Oh God, we so often talk about humility. And God, when we ask for humility, Lord, that's a dangerous prayer. God, you are so holy and glorious and merciful that you could easily humble us at any moment. And many of us know what that feels like. God, place us under your word. Get our priorities right. Help us to love one another well not to be selfish. And God, give us conviction 
over the gospel, the gospel that saves. I would stand firm on it and to do all these things together. Lord, all these things are for your glory. They're for your fame, not ours. Lord, we are nothing without you. And so, God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.